How about Revelation chapter 2? So far we are right on time. One week, one chapter. See? It can be done. We're in chapter 2 today. As we continue to study about our Lord's coming and uh, look through this book together. Now, there are, I, I told you I'm going to pick a key verse or phrase for every chapter. And if you're one to write this down, be ready, because there are several verses that I call key to chapter number 2. You'll find it in Revelation 2.2 2 and 2.9 and 2.13 and 2.19. The Lord keeps saying, I know. That's one of them. The second one is in 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's repeated four times. And one more. Chapter 2, verse 7 and 11. And 17 and 26, he who overcomes. Three key words repeated four times each. And now you just saw my outline. He who knows, he who hears, he who overcomes. Seems to be the pattern of this chapter. So follow along and watch for those things as I read chapter number two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds as you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. For this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of the life which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, 
and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat them sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So, you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. To the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. So I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Woo! It's a lot, isn't it? Heavenly Father, help us with this this morning to get uh, from that what you would want us to know what you would want us to do. For we submit ourselves to your word, and it is a powerful word, and it cuts right down to the very heart of who we are, and it's able to discern all these things. And I pray, Lord, that you just guide us as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I told you last week, and I'll continue to say it this way, that... uh, We are studying the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the nature of this book. It is a book written about him, written to his church. So that his church knows about him, like we should. And yes, I know, chapter 4, 5, 6, all the way up to chapter 18 or 19 or so, you're not going to see much reference to the church. And some people say, well, then it's not about... Yes, it is about the church. He's telling the church what they're going to miss. 
I like to say it that way. But there will be things going on. But in chapter 19, there's a church. And she's coming back with him. So all of this is a study of us in our relationship to him. To knowing him. And so we're going to walk through this very carefully as we do. But we can't go into all the details we'd like. Or else I can't keep one time a week for each chapter. So I've encouraged you to be reading ahead. Reading the chapters before we come to them. And if you've done that, you've already gotten a thousand questions perhaps from chapter 2. And I probably won't answer all of those. Or maybe many of those. But I am going to keep a focus on Jesus Christ in these chapters and show you what it has to say about him uh, and what he has to say to his churches. That's chapter number two and three. He showed himself, revealed himself in chapter number one, and now he starts to tell what he wants to say to the churches. Underscore again, Jeff brought this up this morning, but we're going to keep saying this. Jesus Christ loves his church. He loves his church. That's why he's speaking to them like he is. It's very important to understand that. He loves his church. To him who loves us, chapter 1, verse 5 said. That was the center of our sermon last week. He loves us. And that means, in this picture that we're going to see when we get to chapter 19, he is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. He loves his church. And he's forgiven us of our sins. Beautiful thing. He's released us from our sins by his blood. Chapter 1, verse 5 said. You know, it had to have been of great value to him to forgive us. That had to have meant a great deal to him to forgive us. Because you know the price tag that came with it. He gave his life to forgive us of our sins. It's too bad we don't take it as seriously as he does. He gave his life for that, that we might be released from our sins. Again, I say this often, but we ought to be the most thankful people on this planet. When you think about these things that Christ has done for us, he loves us, and he changed our position forever. He's made us a kingdom, verse 6 said in chapter 1, priest to his God and Father, That's quite a change from one who once opposed him in every single way. He called us his enemies before. He called us lost and hopeless and separated. And now he can call us a kingdom. He can call us priest. What a difference that is. What I'm underscoring is that he loves his church. He loves his church. And we need to keep that in mind as we go through chapter 2 and 3. Because this underscores his love. If he did not love the church, you would not have chapter 2 and 3. Let me remind you of something. Go back with me. Put your bookmark here, whatever. Hebrews chapter 12. Not a long ways back from where you are right now. But Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 5 and 6 with me. The writer of Hebrews is making this comment. He says in verse 5 of chapter 12, You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now you say, well, disciplines. Let's soften that word up. But you can't soften it up, because look at the next line. And he scourges every son whom he receives. What's that? It's a sign of love. Why does he do it? Well, because he loves us. But does he not have something in mind? Does he not have a goal? Is he not training us to be something? You know what it is. I don't have to tell you, do I? You already know, but I'll tell you anyway. He's making us to be like him. He's making us to be like him. And I think that uh, that's going to take a lot of work, isn't it? And this is his process, because he loves us. He loves us. Each of these churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven of them in all. They will receive both commendations and condemnations. He praises them and he rebukes them. He takes away from them and he gives to them. His goal, though, is that every church that wears his name is to be made like himself. That's his goal. Chapter 19, I'll show you what will the outcome be. Just so you get a preview of this, because this is where it's going to go. This is what it's going to be. Chapter 19, verse 7, and verse number 8. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Whoever heard of a bride going into a wedding not ready? Isn't there a lot of work that goes into that? You brides understand that, don't you? She has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is a righteous acts of the saints. That's what she's doing right now. I put that in a third person, but as a believer in Christ, that's yours. That's you. Do you realize that right now you're preparing the wedding dress? How's it looking? How's it looking? That's his goal. In case you're saying, okay, Pastor, I, I, I see somewhat what you're talking about. Let me be more specific. Ephesians chapter 5. There is a handful of verses starting in verse 23 and goes through 29. If you're familiar with the passage, Paul is instructing husbands how to love their wives. But what he says at the very end of this is, Oh, I was talking about that, but really I was talking about Christ and his church. Because husbands were to be like Christ, right? And as a result of that, we're to mimic him in the way we love our wives. That's what it's talking about. We're to replicate that. And so he goes, Paul goes through a detailed expression 
of what it looks like, what Christ is doing for the church, so that we men could do what we should for our wives. That's uh, that's the application of the passage. But let's underscore from verse 23 to 29 what Christ is doing for his church, because that's also the main thing we're talking about now. Husband is the head of the wife as, here it comes, Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. That's the church. And, verse number 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, and I, I put that in bold and then I have in regular print, so also the wife ought to be to their husband and everything. Husbands love your wives just as, verse 25, here it's in bold again, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that, verse 26, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and verse 27 is it. This is what I wanted to show you specially. So that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she should be holy and blameless. Who is holy and blameless? Jesus Christ. What does he want his church to look like? Look like him. You see it? That's his work. This is a lot going through here. It also mentions in verse 29 that he nourishes and cherishes the church. So does Christ the church. So this is his work. This is the heartbeat of the book of Revelation. He is talking to the church he loves that he's shaping to be like him. So he gives them instructions. And at times it's pretty tough to swallow. But it's necessary. If they're going to be holy and blameless, then they can't be otherwise. You get it? That's what chapter 2 and 3 is all about. He's dealing with the things that are otherwise that need to be removed. Tell me something. Of all I've read to you already this morning about the church, what is it that you don't like about that? None of you are going to stand up and say, well, I don't like, nobody would do that, would they? I would say that all of us as believers in Christ like what Christ is doing, right? We long to see what he wants to see, don't we? Do we have a heart desire to be like him? Are we willing to go through the process to be like him? Okay, we'll find out. Let me ask you one more question. Would you consider the work Christ does in his church to be worth the end result? It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny this way. We get comfortable in a world that will not last. And we resist conformity to our Lord, which will be ours forever. Why is that? Jesus says to the churches, these things, because they're in keeping with his work, to change us forever. That's what he's doing. They all have a similar problem. Chapter 2 and 3, seven churches with the same problem. 
You say, but they're different. Oh, yeah, but they're the same. They're all infected by the disease of this world. They're all contending with the fact that they have dim eyes. They have dull ears. They're all contending with the fact that this temporary cloud has blocked their view of the eternal. How many times do we feel that in the course of a week? That the things of this world tend to cloud out the things of Christ. Shall we be like that? Let's talk about three wonderful things. Number one, he who knows. He who knows. Christ can properly diagnose our problems because he knows. (laughs) He knows. He knows what things presently are. And he knows how to compare that, what, what we should be. He knows. Pick any one of them. You saw there were four times he said it, right? I know, I know, I know, I know. He said that the same word every single time. The Greek word is oida. I like it. You can spell it O-I-D-A, oida. Oida is a, is a uh, fun word for me when I'm teaching my Greek students. We learn it very early in the vocabulary. And since we spend all our time talking about present tense verbs, they translate it like it's a present tense verb. And I say, oh, 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 it's a perfect tense verb. And I correct them every single time. It's funny because we laugh about it now because they automatically say present tense verb. Now you're sitting there saying, what difference does that make? Let me tell you what difference it makes. Being a perfect tense verb like it is, it talks about something done and stays done. It's strong. It's the strongest. About the strongest way you could possibly say, you know something. He's not saying, I'm in the process of learning about you. He's not saying, every day you surprise me with something new I didn't know about you. There is a word for that, by the way. It's called gnosko. It's a Greek word, I know. But it's a process of learning. It's what you and I do all the time. We're learning, we're learning, we're learning. We've learned when we were little, keep your hand off the stove when it's on. All right? That's a lesson everybody has to learn. And once you learn that, I hope you never have to repeat it. I've got some marks on my hands to prove it took a while to get through to this head. But he knows. Perfectly knows. He's not learning about us. He's not surprised at who we are or what we are. If, if we disappoint him when we fail, if he's excited when we're growing in his knowledge of us, uh, he could have said all that. But what he said here is, I know you perfectly. Perfectly. Matter of fact, there's nothing else for him to learn about you. Woo! Does that alarm you? That's what he says to these churches. It goes back to Hebrews 4, verse 13, where it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are laid open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows there is nothing for him to learn. When he's talking to his churches here, he says to every single one of them, I know. I know. I know. 
And like Jeff brought up this morning, what if he was talking to us? He walked into Hillsdale Bible Church. You know what his first two words would be? I know. He knows. He knows us inside and out. To the Ephesus church, he said, I know you. To the Smyrna church, I know you. To the Pergamum church, I know you. To the Thyatira church, I know you. And guess what? He loves every one of them. Is that always amazing to you? That he could know us, know us all that way and love us still? He does. He does. Ephesus, I know your works. I know your toils. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil men. I know that you put the apostles to the test. I know that you find them to be false. I know you've endured. I know you have not grown weary. Verse 2 through 3. I know that. To Smyrna, he says in verse number 9, I know your tribulations. I know your poverty. But I also know you're rich. Verse 9. To Pergamum, verse 13. I know where you dwell. I know you hold fast my name. I know you did not deny the faith. I know that you have had a martyr in your midst. Verse 13. Thyatira, I know your works. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service. I know your perseverance. I know that you're doing greater things now than you've ever before. Verse 19. In other words, I know my church. I know the things that are your strength. I know the things that are your struggles. And your struggles do not diminish my love. And your strengths do not increase my love. Understand that? They do not shape His love for us. They shape our love for Him. The struggles and the strengths. He says, you folks in Ephesus, I know you. You waver in your love for me. Smyrna, you're tempted. You're tempted in fear of persecution. Pergamum, you've tolerated false teaching. I know, I've seen it. Thyra, Tyra, you've been intimidated. You've even allowed bad leadership in your midst. I know that. If he took inventory of our church, what would he say? That he knows. That he's seen. Our struggles and our strengths. If he took inventory of us personally, and he looked right at you, said, I know your strength, and I know your struggle, what would he say? Would he say, you know, you, you waver in your love for me. Would he say, you're tempted to fear? Would he say, you tolerate false teaching? Would he say, you're intimidated by others who are evil? He knows. He perfectly knows. I've spent a great deal on time, time on this this morning. And it's really not quite enough of what I would like to say. Just enough to say that this whole book 
is the instruction to his church in the process of shaping us to be like him. He doesn't end with verse 3 and say, or chapter 3 and say, Woo, got that over with, now let's get on to other things. He doesn't stop conforming his church. He works and works and works and works in the life of his church. These things are just not meant to say, okay, if we got that through, let's move on. But he says, these things I bring to your attention because they need to change so that you're like me. You're like me. So he knows. He's the one who knows. What do we do? Here's our application side. Move it down here. He who hears. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear what he says to the churches. I'll give you one word. Listen. How many times have you used that in your life? To people about this big? Listen to me. Usually in that tone of voice, right? Listen to me. What a sad thing it is in Scripture that the Lord has to talk to his church and say, Listening? Are you listening? You have ears. Do they work? Here's a way to look at this word. Akuo is a Greek word. It means to hear. You say, that's cool. It's where we get our word acoustics. All right? has to do with the sound and all these things for the ear. But here's what's interesting about that word. It means more to, than just to hear. It means to listen, to understand, and to obey. Aha! You ready? It's a great word to teach children and grandchildren. Because you're not complete in hearing until you are obeying. That's the definition of the word. You're not complete with hearing until you are obeying. You have to listen and understand and obey. That's all in one word. And so when he says to his church, listen to me, listen to me, Ephesus, where did you fall? Remember where you have fallen. That's what he calls them to do. To Smyrna, be faithful people, be faithful to the end. To Pergamum, repent. Can you hear it? Repent. To Thyatira, hold fast. Hold fast. You see, what good is it to diagnose a problem without a cure? Say, oh, you've got a terrible problem, and then walk away from it. You wouldn't enjoy that. You would say, well, what can we do about it? In every single case where the Lord points out their need, He points out their solution. Every single time He does that, He says, these are your problems on this earth. But I have a cure for you that has eternal value. It will change you forever because it will make you like me. One of them that keeps appearing in the page is the word repent. People don't like that word anymore. It's not in the top list of favorite words in the church, is it? The word repent. Our world thinks it's a negative word. Our churches have thought, oh, it must be a negative word. 
so we can't use it anymore. So they've stopped using the word repent. The word repent is significant to a believer. It means have a different mind. Have a different mind. A mind that is opposite the way the world thinks. I would say that's a healthy thing. That's a good thing. Romans 12, 2. You know the verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Look at what happens when the mind is changed. You know God's will. You know what is good. You know what is acceptable. You know what is perfect. Why should we resist such a work in our hearts? Why should we stand up and say, No, Lord, I don't want to go down that route. It's unpainful. When the results are so wonderful. We resist it because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it to be pointed out that we're not that way. We resist it because it takes things away from us. Or at least that's the way we perceive it. We say, but Lord, you might take this away from me. And I kind of like playing with it. Thomas Goodwin, I don't even know who he is except this quote I have. Wrote it down. So what if God takes away more of the world from you than others? If he gives you more of himself than others? said, hmm, boy, is that going to be a thought. Which would you trade? Which would you rather have? Church, listen, is what the message is. All the way through here. Listen to him. Hear it. Listen to it. Understand it. Obey it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because he who goes down that road is he who overcomes. That too, four times through. He who overcomes. He who overcomes. Each of these churches were promised rewards for overcoming. We don't have time to examine what they all are, what it means to get a white stone. These kind of things. We, you could read that up and study that a little bit more. We, we can't look at all those things. So I'd just like you to dig a little deeper. But just look at the nature of the word for a minute. Overcome. Nikao, the Greek word, we get the word Nike. N-I-K-E. It comes from the Greek word N-I-K-E-O. We get our word Nike. The verb means to be victorious, to conquer. That's probably why they chose it for their shoes. They wouldn't choose the name to mean loser, does it? You'd pick the good one. So they'd pick that good one. It means to conquer. To be victorious. So we know that when we strap on our Nikes, there's going to be effort, right? When we put those shoes on, we know that we're going to strain our muscles. We're going to stretch them a little farther than used to. There's going to be a little pain because the old phrase is where there's no pain, there's no gain. So we say, okay, I understand that. It's going to be, I'm going to feel it tomorrow. There's going to be work, but it's called discipline of exercise. Does it have its reward? Yes. Do you realize that church life is challenging too? It takes effort, straining, stretching, pain at times, lots of work. 
One person once said, this world is a lousy home for believers, but it's a great gymnasium. Here is where we get disciplined to be like our Lord. This is where we get challenged in things. But here, I want to make this point. There must be a goal in mind. There must be something you're striving for. Because we don't strive for nothing. We aim for something. So, here's a motto, if you need a motto. Rest at nothing until you are like Him. You can set that as your motto for the, the, the year. Rest at nothing until you are like Him. That's the overcomer. This is what God has said. This is His plans for the future. We know all that. But what is His reason for giving us the plans? Titus 2. You're going to read it in a few minutes. Titus 2 says this, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age right now. Why? Because we're looking for a blessed hope. We're looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. That thing He's calling you away from is what He died to set you free from. He wants to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. He wants you to be like Him. So He walks through the process and He says to us, I know... I know. I know you. So listen to me. Because I want you to overcome. I want you to overcome. If I could simplify chapter 2, that's the way it would look. We are children of God. John says it has not yet appeared what we will be. But we know this. When he appears, we will be like him. For we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. I said a theme before you. It's real simple. Jesus is coming back. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. Are we ready? Are we ready? He knows us. Do we hear him? Do we overcome? Next week, go through chapter 3. All right? Read chapter 3 and prepare your hearts with what the Lord has to say to His church. Heavenly Father, these things we set before us from Your Word, there's a lot of detail, I know, Lord. A lot of detail. A lot of study can go into this. But even if we should study our own life and spend all our time in all the details, the pieces, the parts that make up who we are, we still stand back and say, these things we know. Jesus knows us perfectly. He knows us perfectly, and He calls us to hear Him, to listen, to understand, and obey, so that we might overcome, so that we might be like Him. That's the big picture of what you're doing. And you're doing it in every single life of those who belong to you. We are very blessed people. But now we have seen also the view But this is going to be a discipline. A good one, Lord. Because you love us. And you're faithful to the end. You will not give up on this. 
And in the end, we shall be like you. What a glorious promise that is. I ask this, Lord, as I do so many times before. But may we be willing participants in the process. Encourage our hearts today, we pray. And thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.